Welcome back into the Royals Farm Report. My name is Joel Tenfield, joined as always by Alex Ball. How you doing, man? I feel fantastic, Joel. Um, the Chiefs just beat the brakes off the Steelers, gave Big Ben the farewell he deserves. Um, that was outstanding. I am really excited for the Bills game on Sunday. I am really excited for the guests we have coming on later in the show. Uh, it's just a just been a really good couple couple days in a row here. So as I've talked about on this show before, as much as I love the Royals in Kansas City, at, at heart I'm a Mariners fan, and that in tune me, like, leads to me, you know, liking the Seahawks. I'm more Chiefs than Seahawks, but still have a little, you know, I I don't hate them or whatever. And we live, my family and I lived in Washington State the year that the Seahawks went to the Super Bowl and played the Steelers when Sean Alexander was the MVP and Matt Hasselbeck. I actually went to the the divisional round playoff game at, at then Quest Field when the Seahawks played the Redskins like that year. So it was, you know, memorable year for me. And I remember I'm sitting at my friend's house watching the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 40, with it was me and all of the dads all of my like my friends were all upstairs, like not paying attention to the game because they didn't care. I was nine years old wearing my Dion Branch Seahawks jersey, sitting there watching the game. And from that moment, like I hated Ben Roethlisberger for no other reason than he just beat my team. Turns out we all had reasons to hate Ben Roethlisberger, and I've been right for the last 16 years. So it was nice to see him get unceremoniously just bopped in his the final game of his career. So goodbye, good riddance. I'm glad you're you're gone. A thousand percent. I'm I'm ready to see. Because I actually really like Mike Tomlin. Like I, I love Mike Tomlin, and I am excited to see what he can do without a total cancerous locker room that he apparently had for years and nobody knew about, and with another good quarterback. We've seen him win. Well, I guess Bill Cowher was the head coach for number one. Tomlin got a ring early. And then really since then, it's been the Tom Brady show in the AFC. It's kind of an unfair way to judge an era when you have undoubtedly the greatest systematic team of all time between Belichick and Brady. Um, I really think if the, if the Pittsburgh Steelers can swing like Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson, that team is going to give the Chiefs fits next year. And I don't mean like, they're going to beat the Chiefs. I don't, I don't like mean that. I'm a huge Chiefs fan, but I think that would be a great rivalry if they can go get themselves a legitimate quarterback and fix their defense a little bit. Defense was a little bummy this year, um, so obviously they got some steps. But I like, I like Mike Tomlin so much. I would prefer him to be the Chiefs' rival than like Josh Allen and the Bills. I don't want anything to do with Josh Allen and the Bills. I hope they never win another game. But I would be okay with the Steelers being that rival because I, I have an affinity for Mike Tomlin. I get weird Jimmy G to Pittsburgh vibes. Why? I don't know, but that's, that's what I think is going to happen. I, I could Early see prediction. it. I could see it. Yeah. Just to, especially as a stopgap, if they go draft Kenny Pickett or something. Yeah. No, I, I could totally see that. Moving on. We can, we can talk more football at another time, but today we have, we have a couple of awesome interviews for you. If you're just a, a nerd for pitching development, hitting development, which I mean, to a certain extent, if you listen to this podcast, you are. Uh, for the second, we have a couple two-time guests now on the show. We're going to start out with an interview with Greg Vogt, who is the founder of PRP Baseball in Indianapolis. Uh, if you don't know, he's been on the show before to talk about Will Klein. He has trained him in the past uh, and talk about his year, 
uh, and what he's been able to do this off season and, you know, pitching development as a whole, it's a really, really awesome conversation that, that Alex and Greg had. And then Alex and I were super excited for this one. Been excited for a couple of weeks when we were able to land it. Uh, but for the second time, we had a uh, Drew Saylor, who is the, uh, the minor, the Royals hit, uh, director, like the hitting coordinator. Uh, he's basically second to Alex Zumwalt as director of a uh, hitting development. And to have him on to talk about a few guys within the organization, but just coaching philosophy and hitting philosophy and, and everything that the Royals have going for them. I mean, it, it's coach Saylor's just second to none. Like he, he's genuinely one of the best people I've gotten to interview uh, in the game of baseball. And it, I think it's a really fun conversation. It should give you as a Royals fan, even more excitement about what he's, he and Alex Zumwalt and Mike Tozar and other guys are able to do with these hitting prospects. Yeah, I I literally walked away from our interview with Coach Saylor excited. Like, I was legitimately excited. Like, oh, man, this is awesome. Like, I cannot wait to see what the next step is. And I was looking back. And, Joel, one of my favorite things about writing up our preseason rankings is getting to, like, recap the year they had. And in the process of typing out and explaining to the readers the year they had, what to expect, and the player – basically writing a little mini, a mini scouting report, I get to like recall and, and, you know, go back and relive all those moments that I'm talking about and get excited for the Royals system again. And a um, little sneak peek into, by the time you're listening to this, actually, the top 15 might be out, 15 through 11, but a little sneak peek. So Frank Mazzucato came in at number 11 on our list. And I was going through basically in his write-up and saying, look, Frank Mazzucato being number 11 on this list is not an indictment on Frank Mazzucato because there's three, four, four prospects that are top of the list. It's not really particularly close. Bobby Witt Jr., Nick Prado, MJ Melendez, Asa Lacey. Like, I don't think anybody is overly surprised that those four are going to be ranked ahead of Mazzucato. Another guy we had ahead of ranked ahead of Mazzucato, same draft class, almost the same signing bonus. A 22-year-old who's already made his big league debut on the mound. A first baseman who walked, struck out, and hit the same number of extra base hits in a season. Same number of walks as strikeouts, same number of extra base hits as strikeouts in a minor league season. A utility infielder, also a first-rounder who had a great year at high A and two of your best pitching prospects with success at double A. Where does he fit in? And it's not even – this isn't even an indictment on Mazzucato. This is a, a roaring review for the Royal system. It is yeah, This loaded. is what you call – this is what you call a good problem. This is a great problem to have. I mean, the Royal system is loaded. The top 11, 12, 13, 14, 15-ish prospects – loaded. So the fact that your seventh overall pick, in my opinion, is no better than your 10th best prospect is fascinating. It is awesome. It is a great problem to have. It is in no way an indictment on Mazzucato, but in talking with Coach Vogt about some of the Royals' arms and talking with Coach Saylor about some of the bats, I just, I am pumped up. I'm fired up and I cannot wait to see what happens in 2022. Yeah, it's amazing what a couple of years and a few coaching changes and a few organizational philosophies does. Well, it's amazing what some of those changes do in a matter of a couple of years. Uh, we, we mentioned it a, a couple of times that if really, I think you and I kind of felt that the turn into kind of what we're, you know, where the Royals were headed 
in an organizational philosophy, at least to a certain degree, when they drafted Ace Lacey fourth overall, gave him seven million dollars to come and pitch for the Kansas City Royals, and told him stay in College Station, keep doing you, keep training, doing, and we'll you know bring you to the alt site later. But uh, for now, keep just keep working and doing what's what's best for you. Can't imagine three or four years ago that the Royals would have done that. They would have said, "Nope, you're coming to Arizona right now, and we're going to start make, molding you into the guy that we want all of our pitchers to be, rather than just." kind of a making you, you know, making guys, you know, I don't know how to describe it, but just like you're going to fit into our cookie cutter and we're going to make that work. And that's just, that's just not the way that pitching works because no two pitchers are the same. So to see that coupled with the talent they've been able to produce along with the development that, that these guys have been able to get, and they're not just good when they come in and then how much better are they getting? Like guys are getting legitimately better at, you know, on the hitting side and the pitching side, there's a lot to be excited about. Absolutely. All right, well, without further ado, we'll get into our interview with, uh, with Greg Vogt and then, uh, and then Drew Saylor after that. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Uh, be sure to follow us on the Royals Review Radio. Uh, leave a like, five-star review, whatever, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, let us know how we're doing. Comment, follow us on Twitter at Royals Farm. Let us know what you want to hear as the offseason continues. Uh, if you want to hear us rant about the lockout, please do, because I have some beer and a lot of opinions. So uh, I appreciate you guys, and we'll talk to you all uh, next week. All right, Joel and I are joined now by a very special guest, uh, Greg Vogt. He is the director of PRP Baseball out of Indianapolis, Indiana is joining us tonight. If you, if the name sounds familiar, Coach Vote's been on the podcast before. He uh, trained Will Klein last offseason, helped out at PRP, and a couple other Royals we're going to talk about uh, here along the way. Coach, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. I know this is a busy time of year for you guys, so we appreciate your time, but uh, thanks for hopping on again. No problem all, guys. Thanks for having me. I'd be remiss if I didn't start talking about Will Klein and the season he had. I think we uh, – here at Royals Farm Report, we were the only major publication that had Will ranked in our top 30, much less top 15 last preseason. And I think it was a video that you shared of Will throwing like 99 miles an hour with really good secondary stuff and a field of, to pitch. And I think a lot of times where, where like fair criticism comes from some, maybe like the average fan is guys get up there and throw and they're clearly – you know, I don't want to say out of control, but it's not going to relay to the mound. Um, and, and the videos you posted, Will was very under control and still throwing like 99 miles an hour. And, and you could, I think even the average fan could tell, like that would play. He goes out in the high A Central League in 2021 and outright dominates for much of the year. Um, what was it like training Will, somebody who's clearly worked his tail off and then had a ton of success in his first bout with professional hitters. Right. I mean, that's the cool part about his story. I mean, he comes from a background of being a, a hitter and a pitcher, didn't really get it much time on the mound through his amateur career. Um, he he kind of blossomed into a, a pitcher at the college level at East Illinois, and he, he kind of picked up into that COVID year where he became a true starter for them. But before that, I mean, he was viewed as a you know reliever that they'd hope to get enough innings where he could get comfortable and, and start to find his spot in the rotation. and you know, it quickly took off to where, you know, a couple outings in, he's, he's just dominating guys in the field, continues to tick up. His stuff is playing well. And I know he had a big outing against Arkansas on the road early season where, you know, he got a true test. And, 
any battle, of course, you run into Arkansas, you're gonna you're gonna have your battles and stuff. So he he got your taste of what pitching was at the high level, and you know, obviously, that year being cut short and going in the draft, most of his stuff and evaluation came from the training side, uh, whether it just be videos and and, and um, scouts coming in to watch him throw. So you know, it was really hard to get a good judgment on how he was going to translate into season um, for a long career, short term, you know, reliever, long term starter, um, just a lot of the unknown, which makes it hard on not only the scout shop, but the organizations knowing what to do. So once he got in the organization, I think he really started to take off just getting on a daily regimen and, and finding kind of consistency with his, his training and put it into place and getting comfortable with the coaching staff there. Um, I know that just after the short season being with the Royals and coming back, he had a little better understanding of what he was trying to do, what he, what he should use the most, things he really need to focus on, and, and kind of got his feet wet with that. So I know that, I mean, obviously there's – it doesn't matter if it's a high school kid or a pro guy, anyone that throws hard and, you know, whether it just be looking like they're chasing the velocity side in the, in the training environment that, you know, we're, we're a part of and stuff, there's easy ways to say, well, this may not translate to results. This may take time to actually develop and be an in-game pitcher. And he just, I mean, he maximized that about as quickly as possible after this last season. You mentioned that he was going to get some starts in for Eastern Illinois before they shut the season down in 2020. The Royals kind of took a different approach with some of their first-year starters this year, and it looked at times as though they were intentionally trying to stretch Will out a little bit without actually letting him throw starters' innings and some of that, the Royals have been, you know, they, they do this a lot where they throw their, you know, their really high high profile relievers multiple innings at a time to get them the experience so they can move a little bit quicker. But I, I can't help but wonder if if part of that is a hedge just in case they decide they want to let him start further down the road. Um, so so I guess my my question really is when you have a guy like that who is throwing mostly reliever innings. How do you build them up from – I mean, how, how difficult is that to go from not throwing in 2020 to in 2021? We want to get him a lot of innings, but also we want to protect his arm. We want to take care of the player. Um, and, and I guess the, the, the ultimatum at the end of that is, do you think he can, he can still throw starters innings um, in professional baseball? Right. I mean, the hardest thing for Will, and even going back to the Nolan Watson situation, is Will had not thrown over like 50 innings in a calendar year. So, like amateur, college, or professional. So, I think the Royals did a really good job of managing his innings. And obviously, with the, the way minor league seasons were, guys move up and down. You get, you know, you got to piggyback games, you got to travel. Like, obviously, I understand the difficulty behind it, but I felt like they did a good job of building up his workload while also managing the flexibility of him going into the back end of the bullpen at a higher level or also progressing into his starting role. So I do praise that, that approach on that end because the piggyback starting has become a true uh, thing throughout minor league baseball. We've had several guys that were that piggyback starter where they, they came in like inning four or five and their, their goal was to get to like that 50 pitch or two to four innings mark um, and then have that kind of four day rest period in between where it was almost like a starter, but also kind of managing the innings that they were throwing. So, I, I mean, I think that's one, it's smart with guys in those situations, like going back to Nolan's spot, like he hadn't thrown that much healthy for two years now and kind of getting him an opportunity to throw more innings, but not, you know, wearing him out halfway through the season, I think was a good approach. So I know Will's arm, you know, just from the way we talked and communicated, like he was doing 
a good job of maintaining his workload and, and recovery levels and lifting aggressively during the season to, to keep where he was at. I know that from a velocity standpoint and pitching overall, his numbers kept getting better. And I think that's a, that's a true testament to, you know, how he was working, how the staff was managing him, how they were working with his, you know, mechanic delivery. You know, I think those are all strong cases for the organization and will um, that obviously really helped him finish in a position that allowed him to be where he was at. You mentioned the stuff continuing to tick up. Um, I, I know Joel he is, wants to ask you about the, the, like this offseason here in a second, but before we kind of transitioning from last summer into the offseason, one thing that, that kind of is um, interesting to me about Will's stuff is he throws his fastball up into the triple digits with semi-regularity, yet the spin rate isn't as elite as the velocity would suggest. And I think it actually allows him to play his fastball down in the zone a little more than the average guy that throws 101, which he had some of the lowest home run totals of any pitcher with as many innings as he threw in the league last year. It's kind of a weird spot because typically with guys anymore in modern baseball, you throw really hard, the spin rates typically correlate, and those guys are pitching up in the zone. It's not that Will can't pitch up in the zone. He did that effectively plenty of times. But I also think the some of the natural sink he gets out of his ball with some of that relatively lower spin for the velocity helps him keep the ball in the yard. So um, I, I, is it is it? I don't want to say it's weird to have a guy with you know spins in the twenty two hundreds throwing one hundred one, but is it is it unique at all, or is it maybe more common than I'm kind of associating with? No, it is unique. I mean, most guys that do throw harder, do have a little bit higher spin in general. Um, there's definitely a lot of anomalies within that case. But, you know, I think one thing that plays for Will in an advanced level for two parts is, you know, this this point I want to make is his angle that he throws from, he's getting like a 12-30 axis, which is pretty much straight over the top when it comes to fastball spin axis. So even if he's a lower spin, you know, we've had him on, you know, our different metric measuring stuff where he's averaging 18 to 20, 21 vertical break. So even when the spins are not that high, when you throw from the axis and you have really true spin, uh, measuring just through reps, so like you're going to create a high vertical breakout. So he still gets that elite high level of the, of the vertical plane, but two parts with that is his breaking ball. Like he, he has become a true two pitch power pitcher where, you know, I don't know the average end up being, but late in the season, you're still on the breaking ball, like more of a 12 sits look breaking ball at 87, 88. Like when you have something that has negative 15, negative 18 vertical break at 88, and you have 100 with 20 vertical break, that, I mean, that's 30 to 35 to 40 inches of vertical break difference at 88 to 100. So the angles that he throws from and how his movement plot plays off each other is just a nightmare for hitters. So I think that's where the eliteness stands out for me. Um, and guys where, you know, spin rates, one, one measurement in the entire equation of creating movement and how guys do that. If he was tilted more towards that 130 axis, he would be a sinker ball pitcher with that spin rate. But because he's more over top with that spin axis, it's going to ride through gravity and, and create more vertical break, uh, more so than a guy in a little bit lower slot. Coach, how has this maybe this offseason training with Will and working on stuff been different than what you saw last season going into his first pro year? Uh, has there been any differences in approach to, you know, working on, you know, mechanics or changing anything? Like what's what's kind of the difference after that first full year of pro ball for Will? 
Right. So the biggest thing with, with his offseason this year is he, he did move out to St. Louis area. Um, I think it's uh, with his girlfriend and, and her schooling and stuff where he's doing most of his training. I think almost all of his training at P3, um, which does a great job. We have, I would say we're very similar a lot in a lot of ways. Um, so we've stayed in touch and, you know, we've sent some video back and forth and talked through things um, just from his approach to it. Like, I mean, just the maturity level, um, the understanding of his body, like getting a full season in his belt and knowing what, what it kind of took to get him where he's at, uh, getting better understanding with the, the weight training and the throwing regimen during the off season has been big for him. Um, and I know he's been, he's shared some stuff on his social media where he's doing some high, high output stuff right now um, with P3 with the similar training component that he did last year with us. So, um, you know, he's still going to be an aggressive thrower. That's the way his body works. He's a very, he's a very high level mover that, you know, when he moves fast, he moves well. So when you have guys like that, having to try and slow them down is not beneficial. Um, so I know he's still on the same regimen on that end. Um, he might be doing a little bit more specific stuff on certain mechanical things that I haven't seen, but I know just from our talks that, you know, trying to feel out that third pitch and really get more command with either that slider or changeup that he got away from uh, towards the end of the year, just because the other two with the fastball curveball were so high level with the, with the, with the pitch outcomes. I think that's going to be a big focus for the Royals and him is making that decision down the road on becoming a starter needing a third pitch to get through that lineup at least that second time and the third time uh, compared to being a two-pitch guy that, you know, whether the, those batted ball outcomes are extremely low, um, obviously keeps the ball in the yard. He punches out a lot of people. Fastball and breaking ball, like if you're punching out guys, getting chased out of the zone and not giving up home runs, you, you're going to get a lot of innings. So it just got, it's got to come down to if he has that third pitch, which I've seen four, and obviously we shared some stuff last year, where that slider could be an elite level pitch for me and the changeup has a true chance and he just gets more trust and more usage with it. So I think that's going to be the biggest focus for him is, you know, now that he's had a full year of workload, managing a true shutdown and a buildup back for another season is a little bit different than the past where, you know, he was almost just trying to get more usage in the offseason because he had not done a full season. So that's going to be a shift for him as well, I would assume. You mentioned striking out the world, and another guy that you guys have with the Royals who strikes out the world is uh, Peyton Gray. Peyton Gray went to high A, struck out over a batter and a half per inning that he faced with a 1.26 ERA on that same Quad Cities team that Will was on. Um, got some time at double A as well, really, really high strikeout rates again. You mentioned that he had um, gone through a little bit of, a, of an injury spell. He's rehabbing, looking good. He's a guy that I don't know is is on every Royals radar, every Royals fan's radar, and, and part of that is our job to fix. Um, so, A, how is Peyton doing? How does he look in terms of being ready for spring training? And, B, um, brag a little more on him because he had, until until the injury and, you know, minus a, a little bit of, of walk issues, um, a really, really good year in terms of his stuff dominating professional hitters. Right. So, yeah, he actually did. It was in the later part of the season, his hardest fastball of the year. He sent me a video of it with the, with the metrics. And I was like, he punched the guy out in the inning and he sent it to me. I was like, oh, that was awesome. Like big punch. I got excited and then he shook his arm. And I was like, wait, what was that at the end? He's like, yep. My elbow went. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, of course, this guy's finally gotten, you know, a true chance. He's, he's out of a great year and, and he pops. So I know he, he had surgery. Um, I want to say early August, maybe a little bit after, before that area. Um, 
so the Royals have had him out in Arizona doing this rehab this offseason. So we've only talked a little bit. I mean, he got married. He did all that stuff. He came back in town around the holidays, and he was right back out there. So I know he's progressing. I know we've talked a little bit about his his recovery timeline and stuff. My guess is it's going to be more towards the middle of the year, given the normal timeline, if all things go well. Um, but, I mean, you talk about just a guy that's – he's been through it. He went from, you know, getting picked up out of uh, Florida Gulf Coast, was with the Rockies was, you know, being not necessarily in their fault, but being told to work down the zone as if you're going to make the course field and all this stuff. We found out, you know, kind of after the fact when he got let go that this guy's throwing fastballs at 26, 2700 RPMs, getting 20, 23 vertical and a split change that's getting next to zero vertical and like 15 to 18 inches of run. And it's like the same movement plot that we talked about earlier with Will just being a nightmare for hitters where he's throwing 92 94 the fastball and the changeup is it's slower which matches the arm speed of the fastball but it's like 76 to 80 and it's just falling from the heavens like he was just punching out everybody at the top and the bottom of the zone so his biggest thing was you know obviously the, the walks being up and trying to be more around the zone but his best skill set is getting that swing and miss in the chase so part of it was intentional where he's trying to keep the ball elevated or use it off the changeup down out of the zone and that's where guys, you know, seem for the first time or, or trying to get a sky report on him, like knowing that this guy benefits from swings. So, you know, once he gets back, I mean, I don't see any of that change in. He's a workhorse. He's He trains like a madman. And he's built himself up after being let go by the Rockies, having a COVID year. He got picked up by the Milwaukee Milkman in the ball and won reliever of the year. He didn't give up one single run in, I think, 48 innings, uh, earned or unearned and punched out like 14 per nine. And it's like, if you want to know how to get picked up by independent ball, it's like, that's probably the best ways. Don't give up a run and strike out everybody. Um, so the Royals gave him a chance. And um, he did, he went to the whole spring train last year, was having a really good year. So, I mean, I know he's obviously frustrated from how the, the season ended and everything, but if I know him well enough, he's going to be right back where he was at. I want to ask you more generally about, pitching development because Royals fans, like, like I mentioned, the Royals drafted a ton of prep arms in last year's draft. The Royals kind of infamously had a, had a rough go developing prep pitchers for a while. And, and I think you've trained some guys who, who maybe went through that firsthand and we don't have to get too specific into the, to the struggles, but it seems that they have turned a corner in some regard. And so we don't have to be specific about the Royals, but can you can you speak at all to how difficult it is to take a teenager, a high school pitcher who's 18 years old, just graduated high school, and is entering professional baseball for the first time, not just in terms of facing professional hitters, but these guys got to be ready to throw anywhere from 70 to 80, 90, 100 innings in their first season without wearing down their bodies and risking injury and making improvements while trying to get guys out. Like I can't imagine that there's like, I don't want to say that it's harder than being a professional hitter, but with a professional hitter, there's less risk of wear and tear on the body as there is with pitchers. And so what, what is that process? Like, cause I'm sure you've, you've trained plenty of prep arms that get drafted and they sign. What is that process? Like trying to get them ready for pro ball and then when they come back over the offseason, trying to build up their body for their first professional season. Right. I mean, I think it's there's three main parts to this. I think what I've experienced, especially in some of the conversations that we've had with certain athletes, is the 
it's the cultural shock. It's the change in regimen, doing it every day for a living, doing it every day, traveling more on a bus, being around the team, going through different protocols with each organization, having their own training beliefs and, and things that they want to set in front of them and kind of clear their path. And just like filling that role that it's the expectation that they're a high end draft pick and that they have to fill these shoes when they just graduate high school. And like, they're trying to figure out a lot of things that none of us had figured out graduating high school. And so that culture shock is huge. I mean, you got to find the personalities and the, and the kids that have, you know, really built a level of trust with themselves, you know, work ethic that's there, um, a consistency level that's there. And it doesn't have to be all baseball. I mean, these kids, they're, they're still trying to figure out who they are and, but finding the right type of fit that knowing what's at stake and what's in front of them, they're all going to struggle. They're all going to struggle to adjust to the lifestyle, uh, whether it's giving a lot of money or a little money, uh, but also just doing baseball full time when they're probably a multi-sport kid. They usually are used to the daily life of going to school and then having after school curriculars and all that stuff. When really all you got to do is show up baseball field, train for three or four hours, uh, build yourself up and then perform for a hundred innings and everything rides on that. And all the extra time that you have is on you. And that's just a lot of freedom for younger kids to maintain, you know, a consistent buy-in to what the overall goal is, um, which is hard. I mean, that's I've conversations with guys that are very beat up from it and conversations with guys that are, you know, really enjoying that process. So um, that's number one. Number two, like, and like you mentioned, it's a workload thing. These kids, yes, now fall baseball and summer circuit, like, unfortunately, these kids are, especially the high-level ones, are throwing anywhere from, 60 to 100 innings in a year, um, which is another conversation. But those uh, those arms are doing that from any time from mid-March until, you know, October, like, 12th is usually the Jupiter tournament, which every high-level arm is probably going to be at. So they're talking about being relied on for that certain amount of time frame, um, but they're not training in a way, at least not most of them, they're not trained in a way that supports that buildup. So you get some kids that have been more beat up through the travel circuit, um, whether it be high school, travel, fall ball, whatever. Um, and then they get into a full year where the, the daily training is more. Um, sometimes it's hard to really evaluate what their bodies can take and how to manage them individually. Um, so I think that's probably the, the second part being a workload standpoint, like the recovery time, the amount of things they have access to, um, but also just a, uh, an environment change. They may have ways that they've gone about getting themselves prepped for their, for their performance, whether it be, you know, a long toss or a band routine or a specific lifting coach or a pitching coach. And then they get in there and they're with, you know, another 50 pitchers and, you know, a good handful of coaches and SNC staff, a mental performance coach. And they're, they can be overwhelmed by it. They can thrive in it or they can really struggle to adjust what they've always done. Um, I think that's one hard thing for the scouting and the development. It is every kid that's not every kid. Most kids have gotten there have had a routine that has worked for them in one way or another, whether it's right or wrong. Uh, for the long-term development. But when all that can change based on the organization and what they believe in, that can really change how that, that athlete recovers and performs. Um, and as we've heard a lot recently, I mean, a lot of these, I mean, I always hear Alan Jager and Driveline these, and these companies sharing what each organization believes in. Are they, or do they believe in long toss? Do they believe in weight balls? How do they manage players? Um, because the draft has now become, it's not just, oh, I got drafted by them, I automatically sign. You know, some of these athletes and whether they're college or high school are having more say in what they want to do or what they want to be around in which organization. So that's become more 
relevant. And I think that's good for baseball because, you know, we have one kid that is probably going to be drafted out of a senior year in the first round or at least in the top 40, 50 picks. Um, who's a Vanderbilt commit that has a very specific way of training and it's worked very well for him. And obviously we've been a, a, a valuable part in that, but he's also been very innovative on what's worked for him and what adjustments he needs to make. So those things all come into play when it comes down to organizations and how they transfer into a lifestyle of baseball instead, instead of just doing baseball on top of everything else. So, you know, that's a, there's, there's a lot of components that go into it, but I do know that just self-experience with it, managing that culture shock and, and training style and workload are the three things that can either set someone up for success with it and really take off or really challenge them to find who they are and what works for them. You mentioned the bridge between the teams and the, and the, and the training. So I think one thing that, that I'll speak for um, in terms of something I've been impressed by with the Royals is I don't believe that five years ago, six years ago, they would have been super comfortable with their pitchers going off and training independently in the off season. Now, not that they can't go train with a trainer some, but not to the extent where like we've seen Will working out with you, Noah Murdoch the other day was posting videos, doing pull downs and stuff. And there's been a couple other examples of guys going to train independently with private companies like PRP that five, six years ago, I just don't believe would have flown like it does today the exchange between a private company like your like what you guys do at prp in a big league club like not that the players pay you and the team pays them so not that it's and you know but in, in a way like if the royals invest a ton of money in ben and ben Coderna, frank mazzucato in round one three million each and um you know it would be easy for the royals to say hey we're giving you each $3 million. We expect you to be on our program. And in the last few years, they've been, they've done a really good job in, in my opinion of kind of letting guys go and doing what got them there. I think Asa Lacey is another great example. Asa Lacey gets drafted fourth overall. They give him seven mil and he stays in college station, keeps training after he signs. Like I think that bridge is becoming more open. There's more communication there's more working together and teams are starting to just kind of let it happen. What does that process look like? You don't have to be specific about the Royals, but how much communication is there between PRP and P3 and driveline and these teams when they've invested money in a player and he comes to you for help? Like that's, you know, it's, it takes some swallowing of, of the pride of the organization to let him go. Right. And I think there's two parts of that too. One um, the hardest part, and obviously I've had experience on both ends now, where they don't know what they're doing and they don't know how they're feeling while they're doing it. So I think the best part in the last year or two that I've noticed is a lot of these organizations are requiring a couple of things. One, video of performance, uh, whether that be a pull down or a bullpen or arm action drills or weight room stuff. Almost all of our guys are required to have video to send into their coordinator um, or whoever's assigned to them. Um, and sometimes those things are the feedback's fantastic, or sometimes the feedback's next to nothing. Uh, but they're at least requiring, you know, checkups on that stuff because a couple of years ago, it was like the wild west where it's like, go do whatever you want to do. Just be ready when you're here. And I think that that can be dangerous too, especially when there's an investment in it. Um, you know, a lot of kids have a trainer, have a person that's really helped them, but how they adjust to the pro ball scene and the, and the off season management of that is also a, a very specific case per athlete. So 
I do know that it's changed greatly because I remember having a, a high end, you know, high rated prospect in, in our facility that was, I was basically told by the coordinator to not do anything, but just make sure he's healthy. And it's like, okay, like, do you want me to actually step in and like do stuff or just like tell you that he's going to be healthy? And, you know, again, like I did my role in it and talked to the athlete the best I could, but that in was, it's hard because they want to, they want to get better. They want to make it to the show. They want to earn those things. So if we can't maximize that four to five months off season uh, with that goal in mind because of restrictions or just fear of the worst case scenario, then how many guys are actually going to get to the show? You know, injuries are going to happen. We don't want them to. Uh, we want to make sure we do everything we can to uh, stay away from them. But we also have to understand that just being a career minor leaguer is not the most enjoyable thing for these guys after getting to the minor leagues. They want to get out of the minor leagues. So these guys, are, they want to make it. And that's where I think the, the mesh between coordinators and pro ball organizations and their belief systems have started to put more trust in these players to do it. Um, and the other part of that is some of these athletes are, are being told where to go. And that's not a bad idea either. If an uh, organization believes in a driveline or a PRP or a Cressy or, you know, tread any of these good organizations, then having some guidance from them um, means that everyone's probably going to be on the same page. So at least if something doesn't go well, then we can evaluate from within and say, okay, what do we need to adjust? Um, how did this not go well? What do we need to make adjustments for next year? Instead of the unknown, which is go do what you need to do. I'll see you in late February and you better be ready to go. Um, because every organization is different. We have guys in organizations right now that are doing high intent mound work. We have guys that are in week three of on-ramp. Um, and that's more a guy that's still from the organization side. And all of them can be right. None of them are wrong because of that. It's more so just what they believe in and how they build up to it. Um, so I think that's the biggest thing. And obviously right now with the lockout and the unknowns of, you know, the spring training um, modalities and when they're going to get there, that's the hardest part for us is, okay, when do you need the mound ready? And what, how much mound ready do you want them? So it's, it's been better on the communication side. You know, we talk to a decent amount of these organizations, whether it just be through the athlete or hopping on phone calls to give some follow-up, whether it be movement plots or evaluating a video or just making sure that they're showing up and doing their stuff. So I think that's been a good sign for baseball. And like you said, uh, they want guys to maximize where they got in the organization and how they get to the show. Then we got to maximize the whole year. And they have them for pretty much the in-season part, which we know how the train goes there. It's, it's keep them mound ready, keep them game execution focused. And during the off-season, there's a shutdown, there's a buildup, and there's a, a, a time to be ready. So that's where most of the development's probably going to happen. If I can guess the kid that you train, that you talk about in the first round, are you allowed to talk about him? Uh, I mean, I can I can definitely refer to this fact that he's probably drafted in the first round, but definitely can't talk about much about his training and everything. But it's I mean, obviously, there's we have six months until the draft and a lot of things can happen. But the the boards are out there and it's pretty clear what this what this young man's earning right now as far as where he's being projected at. So there's a big, tall lefty in your area that I'm in love with for the draft, this upcoming draft as it relates to Kansas City's where they're picking in the draft and what they've kind of favored in terms of prep arms in the past. When you get – so we don't got to name names, but when you get a unique talent, first-round kid, Vanderbilt commit, if it's the same kid I'm thinking of, you get a special talent, and they they trust you to come in and they train. And, and I guess this applies to guys like – you know, this applies to everybody that comes in and they, and they trust you to train. But 
when you get a guy that's really like different and they come in and they train, does it elevate the level of everybody else in your building? And, and again, I don't want to say that a, that, a, that a high school kid that hasn't stepped foot on a college campus yet is inherently going to like outshine a guy like Will Klein who just had a ton of success in professional baseball. But you get a kid like that. Does it, does it elevate the game of everybody else in your building? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the, the lefty you're referring to, I'm assuming is the one from Chicago area. Yeah, that's, we don't, we have not worked with them in, in individually. Um, we have a righty named Andrew Newcanage. Um, I, I don't, I'm not afraid to say his name. We see him every day and he's, he's earned where he's at on his own. And obviously we've worked with him since he was going into his eighth grade year and watching his progress from the first time we ever did a plyo drill to his last couple of weeks of his really getting ready for the mound stuff has been fun. Um, but I mean, man, you talk about what PRP has grown the most from. It's not a drill or a modality or a track man or a weight room. Like all those things are key to the success of it. But when we have those guys walk in, the whole feel of the training floor changes. And not that there's any bad sign from the when those guys aren't in house. But I also think like we have an 18 U team called the PRP Mambas. Every kid, there's 32 players on the team, and everyone's committed to play college baseball. There are guys that are going to play professional baseball on this team. And there's a lot of guys that are going to be impact players next year at college ball. When they show up on Saturdays and our rest of our training floor is going, it's just like, oh, I wonder what they're doing. I want to watch what they do. And it's like, we'll just talk to those guys. Be like, what did you see him do? How did you see him approach his training? Did you see him screwing around during his plyos or even his, his warm-up mobility work or his core velocity belt stuff? Did you see how much intent there was in his catch play? And like, you just start to tell them like, look, look, they're not showing off. This is why they're good because they're buying in on the small stuff. And then, yeah, when they go there and do a pull down and it shows a hundred, it's like, there's a reason they're a special athlete, but they train in a way that's very focused. They don't waste time. They don't waste energy. And it's really fun when you bring them all together. We got guys that like each other and don't like each other. And when they, when they pull down the same time or they mount view at the same time, then there's some things that get said that I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, yeah, get after it. And that's, and that's fun. I mean, Again, we know what we know what drives us and on field performance is the goal. But when you create a culture like that that has guys that are just learning from the older guys or even the younger guys, like some of the older guys that are really good though knows the kid doing his stuff right and taking it seriously, and they'll go up to him and talk to him, like, hey man, like I don't I don't know you from anyone else, but like keep it up because at some point this is gonna be you. And and that just goes longer than anything I can say. I can say whatever I say. One guy that's a high level guy tells a kid something, it's like gold. So you know, that, that environment's fun, whether it be in the cages, the weight room, the turf, um, that side's fun. And that's obviously, you know, the more guys that make the draft fantastic, but our ultimate goal is to make them have fun playing baseball. And that means college ball. That means varsity baseball. That just means that they have fun playing the game as long as they can. So you're, you're right. I mean, that's, there's nothing we can, we can trade out that's equally as important as that culture. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I know we, promise to try to keep you at a, at a certain time. I know you guys are busy, but um, it really is. I think there's, you know, there's, there's a group of, of Royals fans that are fairly jaded um, and they are in fairness, like they are correctly. I don't know what the word is. They are justifiably jaded when it comes to Royals pitching development. And I, and I really think, I believe that they've turned a corner and it's nobody's going to believe it until they start producing. Um, but I, I think they're close, and I, and I really want Royals fans that are listening to this, um, you know, I, I, I hope you give it a chance because 
John Sherman coming over from Cleveland, I think, has had an impact. I think the turnaround they made with Drew Saylor and the hitters times up with the, the move they've made um, to, to try to create a better environment for their arms. And we talked about, like, I think Asa Lacy is the best example I can give. Royals gave him $7 million and then said, stay in college station and keep training. Like, um, right. that, that's fine. And I think, Coach, like, the stuff that you guys do to to train their arms when they're away from them in the offseason, um, it, it seems like this is a trend that is going – that isn't ever going to go away unless MLB teams decide to buy all up and just, you know, employ it for themselves. But the the ability to to work with these kids, communicate with the organizations is a crucial piece – of the pitching development process. And the more I see the Royals allowing it to happen, the better I feel about the future of their pitching development. So, A, thanks for coming on the show tonight. We really appreciate you. We really appreciate your time and your insight. B, thanks for all the work you're doing for uh, some of the guys that the listeners are going to be wanting to watch here in the next few years and all the work you're doing for them. No problem at all, man. I really do appreciate you having me on. And obviously, like I said, I, I know that the, the judgment can always be there on how things perform at the big league level. But as you see with all the organizations, it starts the minor leagues and the development there. Then all of a sudden they look like they just became a big leaguer, but that happened two, three years prior with all the buying on that side. So it may take a little bit of time, but the organizations that are doing it right on the, either the guys getting out of the draft or the guys that have been battling through the minor leagues, once they make it, you see the performance on that field, then it's, it's there. And that's the best part of it. That's awesome. Coach, real quick before we get you out of here, we're going to do our last question. Last, you're a two-time guest, so I got to change up the the baseball history question here real quick. But you're a pitching guy, so I'm going to couch this a little differently than I did with our interview with Drew Saylor. Um, if you could face one batter in baseball history, sixty feet six inches away, not asking to strike him out, but just to say that you've faced this hitter in baseball history, who would it be? A Rod, and I'm punching him out. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> for several reasons. Oh, Are you excited for his ESPN telecast on Sunday Night Baseball? No. Find anybody else. <laughs> As a <laughs> guy uh, had a great career. I'm, I'm a nobody compared to him, but if that's the one guy, then I'll let him take me yard if that's what has to happen. <laughs> Hey, I, I, as much as I'm a Royals fan, I grew up a Seattle Mariners fan. I was a jaded little four-year-old when he uh, decided, nah, I'm going to leave Seattle and go to Texas for nine figures. I was like, all right, man. Yeah, a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Never forget the fact that he actually, in part of his negotiation with Seattle, when they want to sign him back, and goes, okay, move the fences in so I can hit more home runs at Safeco. <laughs> yep, sounds about right. Now he's on the bump parade. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. Advocating for sacrifice bumps when you have almost 700 hit home runs in the show. All right. Dude. Right. That's always funny. Well, All right, Coach. coach we'll get you. Thank you Go so ahead, much. Go. Yeah, thank you so much, Coach. Really appreciate it. Love to have you on again soon. No problem at all, guys. Thanks again. Take care. Joining us now uh, to talk a little little hitting. Uh, we're very excited to have back uh, Coach Drew Saylor. He's a minor league uh, hitting coordinator uh, for the Kansas City Royals. Uh, second time on the show. Glad to have you, Coach. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back on, guys. Coach, I couldn't be more excited to get you back. We talked um, last spring when we talked. The Royals were going through a transition. And when you came on in 2019 and – you know, I know the listeners know this. I know you know this having come in. You know, it was a little bit of a, of a rougher 2019. We didn't have a 2020 season, which looking back, you know, pandemic aside, maybe a blessing in disguise in some capacity. 
a lot of the Royals' top prospects had great seasons in 2021. I don't think anybody could have really asked for much of a better season. Um, but reflecting on the 2021 season that you guys had, I mean, I can't imagine you could have been a whole lot happier with how things went in 2021. Um, but how do you reflect back on a season like that and go, man, A, that was so cool, and B, how do, we, how do you build on a season like that and, and think to yourself, man, in 2022, we're going to take that to the next level from what was, again, I mean, set the bar pretty high for, your, for you guys, for you guys selves in 2021? Wow, uh, very complex question. Um, I'll try to work, uh, you know, through kind of the systems and processes as best I can. Um, but, yeah, I mean, kind of working from just where we're at right now, I mean, you know, looking back at 2021, um, you know, I kind of likened it very much to winning a championship, um, you know, especially just in, in just some of my line of work and what I've went through as a manager. Um, being able to watch just that story be uh, told and unfolded by our players and our staff was absolutely beautiful. Um, again, couldn't ask for, you know, better seasons, you know, from a lot of our guys. Um, and really the thing that was probably the coolest was just being able to just to hear the conviction and to hear the confidence coming out of, of everybody, you know, not necessarily just, you know, the, the leadership perspective, but just the players, um, how well they felt prepared going out there every single night. Um, hearing it from the staff, uh, you know, I think one of the funnier moments I had was we had one of our hitting coaches go, man, I'm like, I'm nervous. And I'm like, well, why are you nervous? And he goes, like, I feel like my butt's on the line. And I'm like, well, good, because all of our butts are on the line right now. Um, but it, it was really cool just to be able to see that the coaches really be able to um, level up. Um, and I don't even know if that's even the right, uh, you know, definition for that. Uh, but just to be able to see them, you know, take in um, the, the data analytic components and then being able to really uh, lean into just their ability to communicate and foster trusting relationships with the players. Um, it was just so much fun just to be able to see uh, just their relationships, uh, you know, continue to build and, and grow deeper with, with a lot of our players. And so um, that was really the thing for me that I really enjoyed watching uh, the 2021 season unfold. And really what was awesome is just how much work, uh, how much effort, how much blood, sweat, and tear equity uh, that so many people put into the department and the process. Uh, that's what was a lot of fun for me. I'm kind of looking back at the, uh, the pandemic short in 2020. Um, and again, just how much we, we had to grow. Uh, I think you said it, you know, pretty, you know, starkly and, and very direct on the front side. Like we, we, had, we knew we had a lot of room that we had to grow. Um, we had to build a lot of, you know, infrastructure pieces. And there was just so many people, um, that had a hand in it, you know, not only just from, you know, just hitting space, but R and D, um, behavioral sciences, uh, scouting, just how, how many people really came in and wrapped their arms around our guys. Uh, that's what was really beautiful to be able to see uh, unfold this 21 season and looking to 2022, we're just continuing to optimize uh, and innovate our processes, you know, being able to find some of the margins um, that we need to leverage. And, and again, just finding, you know, margin enhancers. I think it's kind of the word that I've been uh, using, you know, Zumi and, and uh, Nick Jackson is now um, our assistant and Mike Tolsar. We want to find um, those margin enhancers, uh, that way we can continue to help our department grow and players grow. When we talk about player growth, I, uh, okay. So Daryl Collins is like one of the examples I use for our readers a lot, for our listeners and for our fans is I can't imagine being in a minor league system where the end goal for every player by, by the nature of the game is to reach the big leagues. And not every at bat 
is, you know, there, there's a very fine line that you walk between in this at bat right now, my job is to help my team win. But my goal for myself is to do the things necessary to continue to move myself up the ranks. I can't imagine what that must feel like for a minor league player. And for a coach, like I, I coach high school baseball. And a lot of the stuff I teach my kids is oriented toward development that they're going to need for college. But when we get into the heat of the game, you know, they're competing, they're trying to win. So the, the example I give with Daryl Collins is, and I'll, I'll brag about him. And then you can talk about the process is Daryl Collins last year. You know, I think from a power output standpoint, everybody would be able to look at it and go, man, there's not a lot of power at present, but certainly the potential for it. And a lot of the other processes he goes through are brilliant in terms of contact skills, plate discipline, an, an approach that is oriented for future success, even if it's not there at present. But but that has to be frustrating for him in, in, in a sense where if he doesn't feel like he's producing day in and day out, but he knows the process is there long term, how do you coach a kid through that and, and knowing, hey, we know it's not what you want right now but stick with the plan because it's working. And in three years, you'll look back and go, man, I'm glad I stuck with it because now I'm playing in big league all-star games. Even though I went through those frustrations, I can't imagine what that's like, but what is it like coaching these young men through that process? Well, I, I think, um, you know, really to kind of, there's a lot of different people that have a vested say in that process. Um, you know, not only just from, you know, what we think uh, DC could be, um, you know, three, five years from now, but also just how we apply that strategy uh, on a daily basis. And I think a lot of that, you know, the, the credit goes to our coaches because again, they're, 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 they're reading the player plan. Um, they're the ones that are applying on a daily basis. They're the ones that are making adjustments to it as they go forward. I mean, really part of, part of what we're trying to, you know, reinforce our players is it comes down just to the decisions you make at the plate. And DC does a tremendous job of that. And I think that, you know, you hit it, you know, right on the head. I think that, you know, his decisions are great. That the ball skills are, you know, borderline elite. I mean, in terms of just, you know, swinging strikes and just, again, how he, um, you know, stays in the zone and how he doesn't chase and, and how he just conducts his at-bats night in and night out. And, you know, when you talk about power uh, output, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of different ways um, that you can see that increase. I think one uh, it starts in the weight room. I think it starts with, you know, finding functional movement uh, with regard to that uh, increased strength. And that's one of the things that DC is doing this off season. Uh, but again, just as, you know, they continue to train to the truth with velocity. Um, and again, just continue just to reinforce just, you know, we, we want hard contact on a line, you know, and, and where that goes, we're not particular like, hey, you got to stay off gap or anything else like that. That's not necessarily something that, that we, you know, harp on with our guys. It's more to say hard contact in the middle of the diamond. And, you know, really another nod of the cap goes to our managers because they're the ones that have to um, weigh the, the, the balance of, okay, you know, what is good for this player's growth for the future, you know, three to five years from now. Um, what is good for the team right now? Because there's times that, you know, you're on a seven, eight game losing streak and you're like, man, we got to find a way to win this game. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, kind of all those things together, you know, we put a lot of onus on our, on our managers to be able to know when to push and pull with regard to future development and what we need right now in this moment. And, um, you know, when it comes to just articulating that to the player, I think our job is to be able to, you know, really show them what the controllables are. And I'm using air quotes with that, 
Um, which again, it comes down to quality contacts and the stuff you swing and the stuff that you don't and everything else that, um, is a byproduct of that, you know, we'll obviously look at, but we just try to really get them to focus on those three things because that is something that's a little bit more predictive of a future output with our players. So really quick and setting up my next question where for, for the average fan that hears the director of hitting development, what, so where are you stationed? And I use the word stationed, but like, where are you stationed all summer? So, I mean, if if fans are thinking about, if you're listening and you're thinking about this, these hitters, they come together in spring training, they come together, fall instructs, and then they go all over the country playing minor league baseball all year with their individual hitting coaches. But where are you all summer? Like literally, like, where are you all summer? Well, yeah. First, uh, the director of hitting is, is Alex Zumwalt. Um, you know, he roves around um, with me being the coordinator. I rove around. So kind of, I think the best way to um, associate the role that I do, it's more like a remote employee. I think that may be the best, um, the, the best way to articulate. So I go around, uh, Alex goes around, uh, Nick Jackson goes around, Mike Tozart goes around to all of our affiliates. And basically we, we're there as an extra set of hands at the affiliate, but we're also there to uh, reinforce messages um, to the players, to the staff. And, and again, just kind of peeking in to make sure that, that guys are following uh, the, the player plans, but also just the overall development strategy of our players. And so um, we go there, uh, we have coffee, break bread with the players, break bread with the staff. Uh, and again, just we're there as a resource. Um, that's kind of what my role is during the season. So um, it's a lot of airline miles, a lot of uh, rent-a-cars, um, and, and it's a lot of hotel stays, uh, but that's kind of what my role is and, and our role as the leadership during the season, we bounce around all of our affiliates and we're, we're there to be able to assist in the development process of the players. So that's during the season. And by the way, that sounds like that is a, that, like you said, that is a lot of hotels. That is a lot of airline miles, but let's, let's, let's maybe say fall instructs, because I think when, We've talked to Nick and MJ in the past, but we've had them on the podcast. They talk about those fall instructs that that initial for in fall instruct, but then in 2020 as well. Um, you know, kind of leading into a question I know Joel's going to ask here in a minute. But when you get all the hitters together, that has to be like not literal summer camp, but like almost like like a kid going to summer camp, like all my guys are going to be here together. They're all going to be at fall camp. They're all going to be at instructs, whatever that looks like that. I can't imagine how much they get out of working with all their coaches, all of the hitting directors, and they're all there learning off of each other as well at at camp. How, how does that go? And, and you don't have to be specific about, you know, a a daily schedule or whatever, but like, how much do you think it, it comes out of that? Because, the guys we've talked to rave about you and the other coaches and the work they get out of those of those fall instruct camps. But what is it like from the coaching aspect of having all of your guys in one place all together at the same time? Well, I, I think it's critical to culture building. You know, we talk so much about that, uh, you know, here and, and, and it is it's vital to to our growth. It's not only just for the players to get to know one another. So as they continue to move up. Uh, the latter closer to Kauffman Stadium in Kansas City, uh, there's a familiarity uh, with their teammates, but also they're, they're forging bonds with one another. And the same thing goes with, with coaches. I mean, as much as we had to ad-lib and adjust with uh, life via Zoom um, during the shutdown and during a quarantine for all of us, um, we've been able to optimize a lot of our systems and processes, but there's really no um, 
there's no, um, I guess, you know, shortcut or way to augment uh, that face-to-face interaction and the work that you uh, get to do and, and put with all the players. And so when we get those guys in our fall camps and even, you know, when you think about spring training with the whole entire uh, system being there in surprise, um, it's really a unique opportunity for us to be able to showcase um, the the new um, ways and processes we're putting into place. Um, but it's also an opportunity just for us to be able to, to you know put a name to a face and just the proximity uh, being around everybody, I think that that's really important. As again, ideas get shared there. Um, you, you get a chance to go on, you know, like I said, break bread, walk, those types of things. Uh, but again, when you get a chance to be able to see just the different, uh, you know, subsectors uh, of what it takes to be a double A player versus being a rookie ball player or you know, triple A from high A, uh, when you get that opportunity to kind of see what it looks like and experience what it looks like. Um, it, it's another level that all of our players get a chance to be able to experience. And I think that helps fuel the fire of their uh, competitiveness. Uh, but also it's just like anything else, you know, when you travel, um, you know, outside of the United States, you get better perspective. And, and that's kind of the best way that I can associate what our players get a chance to, to see and feel when they come to those camps is you, you get a chance to see and, and experience what it's actually like at those upper levels. And there's also a big um, mentorship process that, that our players uh, have at, you know, at those upper levels to be able to take those younger players under their wings and to be able to help them along in their process and be able to fast forward their development. So Alex kind of mentioned it with the seasons that, uh, that Nick Prado and Andrew Melendez had it in 2020, really revitalizing their career after a rough 2019 in high A we were had the opportunity to interview them during this last season and they both mentioned a uh, time at the alt site and both with instructs, you know, being able to work on some things and retool some things in their swing and really had kind of like light bulb moments of, Oh, this is the thing. And then bam. And then the progression was what it was in the seasons they had, what they were. How do you go about, about retooling guys and trying to figure out maybe something different in their, their swing or their approach or their bat path, anything like that without changing who they are as a player wholly, right? I think there's a balance there, maybe trying to make things, you know, try and change too much and completely change who the player is. How do you balance that and then help the player get to that light bulb moment through some of that, uh, those philosophical changes? Yeah, um, both those guys are interesting case studies because the changes that they made, uh, one was, was fairly physical, the other one was more of a psychological change um, and really our job that is, you know, as teachers is we have to be able to take in all the information, we have to synthesize it, and then we got to be able to tell, um, a really compelling story to our players about, you know, kind of the, the vision that we have for them, the adjustments that we want them to make and how they're going to be able to do that. You know, I talk a lot about the how is the most important thing. Yeah. The why, the why is important, but I think that we're starting to graduate now with our players. We have to be able to be more specific with the how. And really, that's where a lot of our other departments uh, come into play because, you know, maybe the best thing for, you know, a Michael Massey is not taking 275 swings in the case. It may be him, you know, going in the weight room and finding a little bit more range of motion. Or um, it could be, you know, a player that needs to spend more time with Ryan and Melissa, um, you know, Lambert in our behavioral sciences. And really, that, that's where uh, I think the, the money is made, if you will. 
is I, I feel that we we have really good discussions with with all of our other different departments, and I think that we just you know come to terms with you know this is the most important thing for our player to focus on right now. We express that to our players. We show them how we got to this you know process, and then from there we put all of our focus and attention into that one thing. And so you know, speaking um, to you know kind of what our process is with all of our players, it's it's not rocket science. Um, all the other teams are trying to do it. I feel that just our process here in Kansas City, I just feel that we, we collaborate better and, and we communicate better. And I know that it's, it sounds really simple. I know it's not that easy. Um, but I think that if there is one thing that we've been able to do um, more consistently over the last you know, 24 to 28 months on the job, um, is I think that we're, we're continuing to evolve our communication lines. We're able to streamline things a little bit faster, and that's why I think we've seen uh, the development and growth with our players this way. I know you have five or six of you guys that are, like you said, kind of roaming around at any point in time, and each level has their own hitting coach and then assistant coaches involved. But I, I can't imagine that it's easy having hundreds of players kind of under your – realm and then on any given night trying to watch Vinny hit at double a and also watch like you said dc at low a and and keep michael massey at high a and like all of their of the things that they need to be working on all under the same umbrella and then communicate with all of them and coach them up and help them and be there for support and know when to just kind of be quiet because they need to work through something on their own and I can't imagine having having that many players. So I guess one thing I've always wondered is not that you and, you know, like you said, Zoom Walt and Durrani and whoever else is involved split up players. Like, hey, you take these 20, you take these 20, you take these 20. But what does the communication look like throughout the year? Like, are you guys talking every morning? Like, how often do players text you, hey, coach, did you see my film, at, you know, last night? Because I can imagine there'd be – 50 text messages on your phone every morning when you wake up, which I guess is part of the job, but there's also a piece of it where it's like, there's so much communication that goes on. I guess really my question is what does that look like all summer when you've got a hundred different players playing a game every single night? I mean, it's, it's a lot of phone calls. Uh, it's a lot of feedback loops uh, that we got to complete. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about is, you know, we want to be able to have consistent communication through, um, you know, our coaches through our coordinators, through our leadership. And, um, you know, we try to be able to take more of a neighborhood approach to it um, because, again, there's certain personalities that mesh really well with certain players. There's certain personalities that don't mesh well with players. And, and we want to be able to give our players the freedom to be able to go um, and, and speak to the people they feel comfortable with because that's where you're going to be able to really get uh, the most bang for your buck. Um, but a lot of it, yeah, it starts with our coaches. Um, we do, you know, field our fair share of phone calls and texts and those types of things from our players. Uh, but really, it, it comes down to, you know, again, like we, we set up our, you know, infrastructure within the organization in terms of, you know, how we communicate with one another. Um, and really, just we, we just we talk a ton. I mean, I don't think that there's, you know, something that is hard and fast with, you know, we talk at three o'clock every day. I mean, some of our coaches, um, they, they want that type of support and that's our responsibility as leaders is to be there for them in that process. Other guys want to have a little bit more, um, you know, freedom to be able to be themselves and, and the communication isn't, you know, every day, maybe it's every three days, maybe it's every week. And 
And really it's, it's meeting uh, your coaches and your staff members and your players where they are um, and, and letting them be them. And, and we feel that when we give them that type of freedom and latitude, uh, we get the best versions of themselves showing up every single day in the cage. Um, so I guess again, you know, I wish I had a, a crazy, like really like prophetic type of answer for you, but um, really, again, I think it's just, we, we communicate a lot. Uh, we talk a lot about, you know, we'd rather over communicate versus under communicate. Uh, and again, like there, there's going to be gaps. There's going to be, um, you know, times when we don't complete those feedback loops. But um, I think that because we have that, I, I give the example, um, the kind writer's room. Um, because we have that type of trust and, and relationships with our coaches, I feel that we're able to um, meet a majority of, of those uh, moments. Uh, and then the ones that we don't, I think that we do a good job of following up on the backside and understanding that, hey, we're human. And, and we're not going to be 100% all the time. Uh, but again, I think that that's what we've been able to cultivate here. And again, it goes back to the culture that Dane's talked about since he's taken the job here. And, and what JJ's talked about and, and Scott Sharp and, and Jen and everything, I think that that's been, um, you know, something that has been, you know, the onset of the organization and kind of the fabric of who we are. And, and we've been able just to be able to build off of that. And I think that that's kind of where, again, the secret sauce is. It's just, it sounds basic, but it's just, you got to continue to talk and, and foster those relationships. There, I, I appreciate your time today. And, and I know you're, you're on a time schedule here. So I do have, I have one more question. There's one kid specifically that I wanted to ask you about. And I was going to, like I said, I was going to try to avoid asking you about specific players, but Eric Pena is one of the most gifted athletes I think I've ever watched at the age of 17, um, 18 years old, his swing is special. You can see explosiveness in his hands that, that truly I, I've, I've mentioned it all the time. And anybody listening to this, anybody who reads the site has, has heard me say this before. He's got some of the best hands I've ever seen on a teenager. Anytime a kid that talented, who's probably never failed in his life at anything goes to Arizona and you know, the, the environment, aside um struggles like that i can't help but like smile and think about like what nick and mj and suli and, and all those guys at high a went through and think man this is this is like like my my faith in those kids rebounding um is is sky high because of the system that's been put in place and we've seen it happen before but you know i know there were a lot of guys who went to arizona last year and struggled um, but, but like, how much fun is it to know that the challenge is ahead of them and that like when you're 18 years old, it's hard. Sometimes it can be hard to know how gifted you are. And I can only imagine from your, from your point of view, looking at a guy like Eric Pena and saying, man, you don't know how, how good you are potentially. And I can't wait to watch you to find success in Columbia or wherever he goes, um, next summer, because it's going to happen. He's going to find that success again. And when he does, he's I mean, that kid is special, and and I can't wait for him personally. But like, as coaches, as parents, knowing that these kids don't know how gifted and talented they are, it's fun to watch them realize that sometimes. Yeah, and and I think you know I've I've talked a lot of you know in a bunch of different spaces about just the specialness that that is Eric Pena. Um, you know, I I still you know, think about just that 2020 year shutdown and, and just again, how challenging it is um, to come, you know, stateside to go through a big league camp, 
uh, to go through a long season in Arizona. I mean, shoot, he was there from you know, February until the end of, of the ACL. Um, and again, just the, the rigors that, that go into that. And, and again, I, I, I have a lot of close friends that are teachers. And um, I, I think that the, the challenges that, that we've seen with some of our quote unquote, you know, big time prospects, um, it's the same thing that we're seeing in the school districts, the same thing we're seeing uh, socially with everybody. Um, I, I think that we're not going to truly understand the magnitude of what this virus um, has presented everybody in the world uh, with regard to just the challenges of, of basically just having life cease for almost a year. And, um, you know, you look at the struggles that a lot of players and, we're, and our organization is not immune to, and I know all the other 29 have the same uh, challenges along the way. Uh, but, you know, you, you look at a guy like Eric, and, you know, he is exceptionally talented. You know, everyone is still really, really excited about what he can be. Um, but I, I think that he's going to look at, you know, his first year at stateside playing the ECL. Um, it'll be a great learning opportunity for him. And just like it will be for, you know, Candy and, and a bunch of other guys that, that went down there um, and got beat up a little bit. You know what I mean? But again, I think that, um, you know, for me, what is exciting is now that we're kind of rebounding or coming out of this uh, pandemic, um, I think that we're going to be better prepared um, for what the rigors look like and the stress uh, that everybody is under. And I think that we're going to be more compassionate, you know, for everybody. So I think for me, um, the, the part that I tend and I, I guess my wife calls me an eternal optimist, um, but kind of what I'm optimistic about with regard to um, to our players, especially younger players, I think that they're going to come out of this better, uh, more resilient. Um, but we got to continue to help them grow. We got to be able to put them in in the environments where they're going to be able to continue to develop. And um, you know, our job is just we have to meet them where they're at, and we just got to be very sympathetic to just the growth that they got to make. Um, but also just the emotional and the psychological components. You know, and I get you know, you being a teacher, you probably see the same things. Like, man, like. You know, this, this this eighth grader is acting like a sixth grader, and I don't know what the heck's going on. Um, but I think a lot of us are just, we would be very well served, I think, by being more sympathetic and empathetic to one another, just knowing what we've all went through, because it was extremely traumatic. And it's a whole year of development that we got stripped away from everybody. Uh, but I think that we're going to be better moving forward, I think. Coach, this has been awesome. Uh, we really appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully this isn't the last time we have you on. Love to have you on again soon and, and talk through uh, what these guys are doing in 2022. Before we get you out of here, uh, we asked you the baseball history question the last time you were here. Along the same vein, you're a hitting coach. Like you're a hitting guy. If you could face one pitcher in baseball history, not not asking you to get a knock off him, but just to see the stuff, what what pitcher would that be? I mean, you know, the first one that comes to mind, I mean, it'd be, you know, Nolan Ryan. I think everyone wants to be able to see um, a guy, you know, throwing the fastest that we've ever seen recorded. Um, Bob Gibson, you know, comes to mind. But I also think Walter Johnson, I'm a little bit more of maybe a little bit of the, the baseball historian that's in me. Um, I think it'd be awesome to be able to uh, to go back and see, you know, him throwing, um, you know, at that uh, age. I mean, there's just there's so many, you know, Whitey Ford. Uh, you know, Don Larson, I mean, I, there, there'd be a ton of guys. Uh, Bob Feller, I mean, come on. I mean, it kind of shows a little bit of just, you know, my, my baseball fandom in there. But I, it'd be really difficult to be able to go down to one guy. But um, I think all those guys would be awesome to be able to go and face me. First of all, I'd have no chance of touching any of them. 
but um, I, I still think it would be awesome to be able to just to see the raw stuff. Sandy Koufax. I'm like, how, how do we forget Sandy Koufax with, with the curveball and all that? So, um, yeah, I, I would love to be able to face all those guys just to be able to see just the nastiness of that. But um, those are the guys that pop up in my head, you know, Satchel Page. I mean, come on, it's, you know, we can sit here my, for another 25, 25 minutes and talk about that. So if I can nail it down to one guy, it would 100% be Satchel Page. <laughs> well, you're, you're a better man than me because literally I'm just thinking, and I even have other guys that are popping up in my head, but they're, you know, I, I think that, you know, you look back at just the different generations of the game and, and, and the, the types of pitches those guys, so I think it'd be really cool to be able to see those things. No doubt about it. Well, thank you very much, Coach. Enjoy uh, your off-season time with family before you head down to Arizona, hopefully here shortly. Uh, take care. Awesome. Thank you guys for having me on. Appreciate it.